Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Glad you've joined me today. First, a comment from a listener regarding yesterday's program. You may recall we talked about avalanches and avalanche safety. We talked to two people who miraculously survived a 700-foot avalanche in Utah's backcountry and talked with Toby Weed of the Utah Avalanche Center about avalanche safety. Here's what Penny Trinka uh, writes uh, to the program. I go into the backcountry with a probe, beacon, shovel, good friends. And after listening to a Utah Avalanche Center forecast, I also send Utah Avalanche Center money so they can come save my butt if I get stuck. That's a Penny Trinka's comment. I'm sure Utah Avalanche Center appreciates that. By the way, to utahavalanchecenter.org. And uh, our suggestion is to follow uh, Penny's uh, procedures and also to always check Utah Avalanche Center forecast. Uh, org. Today on the program, the second half of the program today, we're going to talk about who owns Utah's riverbeds. It's not in dispute that uh, the public owns the water flowing down those waterways, but at dispute, or in dispute, is whether the public owns the bed, the riverbed. Some say And in fact, House Bill 148 made it so that anglers, kayakers, and others have to get a landowner's permission before walking on that private bed of a public body of water. Opponents say this law thwarts the public interest to the exclusive benefit of private parties and is tantamount to, quote, reverse takings. Uh, The sponsor of House Bill 141, which uh, passed uh, two years ago, Representative Kay McKiff, Republican from Richfield is back with House Bill 68 to do some clarifications and strengthen that law. And there are those who are definitely opposed. We're going to talk to one of those, Craig Coburn, an attorney representing Utah Stream Access Coalition. That's the second half of the program. In the first half of the program today, right now, we're going to talk about the 29th Annual Information Technology Conference. Uh, This is sponsored by the USU Huntsman School of Business Partners in Business. Key topics to be covered tomorrow are mobile and cloud computing, big data, network security. And we bring in two keynote speakers uh, right now. Stephen John is Strategic's Chief Information Officer at Workday. Mr. John, welcome to the program. Thank you. And uh, we appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Kimberly Jones is founder and CEO of Verite. Thank you for joining us. Certainly. Thank you. We all, of course, are affected by our new digital world, and uh, these trends are uh, intensifying, it seems like. We're all sort of moving to the cloud. Mobile computing is all part of our lives as well. There are opportunities and dangers and problems. I'm sure we're going to talk about some of these uh, things and a lot of opportunities for business as well. That's the focus of presentations. Kimberly Jones' presentation is mobile-friendly or mobile apps, creating a sound mobile strategy. And Stephen John's presentation, From Process-Centric to Analytics-Centric, How Companies Will Differentiate. Let me start with Mr. John. First of all, tell me what uh, Workday is, what it it does. So Workday is is a software as a service company. It uh, does uh, uh, corporate software uh, focusing on uh, back office operations, uh, human resources, and uh, finance. And you've worked at at several other companies before, including, I believe, a, a chemical company before you came to Workday. Yes, I was actually Workday's 33rd customer and uh, saw the brilliance of the software and the trend of the future and, uh, and joined them. And so you, I think you were Chief Information Officer there and at several other companies, Strategic Chief Information Officer at Workday. This is a position that you, you go back 
you know, a, a few decades didn't even exist. Well, I actually claim to be the first second-generation CIO. My father was CIO at Scott Paper in, in uh, Philadelphia, and then he became the CIO for the, uh, the LDS Church, and then after 9-11 became the CIO for the FBI. And so, uh, so as far as I know, I'm the only second-generation CIO. So it goes back to the early, uh, early 70s. Now, uh, you, you, Darwin, you, son? Yeah, Darwin. You're, yeah, that's my father. <laughs> okay, yeah. You, you know the name. <laughs> I do. Yes. Uh, so your father, what, what, uh, tell me a little bit about that. that <laughs> because we all have these pictures of um, you know, these huge computers and the, and the cards that shot through them. Uh, I guess in the 70s, this, there, were, there were, began to be CIOs. Yeah, so so it was a very different world back then. As a matter of fact, I remember one of my jobs as a as an eight year old boy was to sort the computer cards uh, for my father, and uh, and we've come a long way since then to uh, to object oriented programming uh, today. And I, I want to follow up and talk about the the cloud. I'm very interested. I'm I'm dipping my toe in the cloud as a consumer. Uh, I want to turn to Kimberly Jones. Uh, tell me what Verite is. What, what do you do? Sure. Verite is a 20-year-old interactive communications agency. We provide creative communications and technologies for sales, marketing, and training organizations. And our clients are mostly in the tech market. We serve Intel, Symantec, Adobe, EMC, Novell, uh, just to name a few, use our products. Um, we really like to focus on the creative objectives behind both campaigns and training initiatives and map those to our software-as-a-service tools, which uh, provide solutions at the enterprise level for event management, content management, testing and certification programs, as well as e-commerce. Mm. Uh, we go back to... Uh... Uh, to Stephen John, um, you uh, you talk about and your presentation is going to talk a bit about uh, analyzing data. We hear about big data. We hear about analyzing data, and you're saying that that businesses are going to be shifting from business process design to data analytics. Give, give me an example of uh, data analytics, and I think Google is a good example. Sure, they're 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 a great example. Um, if actually to pull my father back into the conversation, the reason the FBI brought him in. Uh, post 9/11 is is one of the reasons 9/11 happened is because we didn't know how to handle big data. We had the data in the system, uh, we just didn't know how to bring it together so that people could understand and make decisions uh, about the uh, the terrorists and what they were doing. Uh, so so the idea of being able to to manage big data and by big data what we really mean is you're able to take information that's in your systems and then also information in other systems and structured and unstructured data, pull it together and, and be able to see trends and, and uh, be able to predict and, and make uh, better decisions because uh, of the view you have into that information. You're saying this is going to be where, where companies differentiate, get a competitive advantage on other companies instead of uh, having a good process design. Absolutely. I mean, nobody, nobody wins new customers because they have a better general ledger than anybody else. And for a long time, we've, we've tried to differentiate ourselves based on our processes. And that's ended up being very expensive and actually, I believe, counterproductive uh, because it adds to complexity. And when dealing with customers, simplicity actually is the better way to go, and simplicity leads to a better ability to collect and, and, uh, and manage data. And it's really through the data that we can differentiate ourselves and actually be of better service to our customers. 
And so analyzing the data, uh, and you used the, the example, good one, of, uh, of 9-11, pre-9-11, uh, this would apply as well to, to companies and maybe just to everyday uh, you know, consumers. Uh, there's so much data out there. How, uh, what, to, what, to, what to sift out of that and what to emphasize, that's the problem, right? Absolutely. And so, so you've, you've got to be able to, to collect it, and then you've got to be able to, to, to bring it together so that you can see, um, you know, and you've got to kind of know what you're looking for uh, so that you can kind of, kind of create the information that helps you drive, drive accurate decisions. Hmm. By the way, what did your, your father was brought in to, to help on that? What, what were some of his conclusions? So, so you know, what, what's interesting is that the, the LDS Church obviously is is one of the biggest users of big data around their their genealogy work, and so really one of the government's uh, largest problems was just that the systems, the information wasn't shared, and so from the various departments, uh, whether that be CIO, CIA, CIA or NSA or FBI, uh, they just did not talk to each other and would not share data. And so that's a lot of what uh, Homeland Security is about, is, is bringing that, that information together and creating the systems to, to pull that information together. Now, with any new technology, uh, an emphasis on technology, there comes some problems and some dangers. I was just watching a, a commercial last night. I can't remember the company's name, but it, it, it'll, it'll run all your home devices. It'll lock your door. It'll, you, know, you can see your teenagers coming home remotely. Um, and I was thinking... You, you better have good security on that system. So, so for our company, there are two key metrics by which we are all measured and rewarded. The first metric is zero security breaches. So we take security very carefully. So I've had three background checks in my life. Uh, when I adopted my son, uh, when my father became the CIO for the FBI, and when I joined Workday. So we take security uh, very, very uh, seriously. The second metric we have is, is 95% uh, uh, satisfied customers, uh, and we do that with a very simple uh, metric. We, we do a, a one-line uh, questionnaire once a year that just says, would you be a positive reference for Workday? And we've been able to maintain about a 97% uh, ratio on that. Mm. And I imagine uh, not just your company, but others in this field, uh, and more broadly, because we're becoming more virtual, we're, we're all out there. Uh, security is, is has risen to near the top of the priority list. Yeah, I, I describe it in a in a CIO's world. It's it's Maslow's hierarchy, right? Security is food and shelter. Uh, you worry about that until that's taken care of, and then you can move on to to worry about uh, more productive or creative things. But until that's taken care of, you shouldn't be worrying about anything else. Mm. We turn to Kimberly Jones, uh, Verite. Uh, you work with, uh, in fact, your talk's going to be about uh, mobile-friendly or mobile apps. You have have that dichotomy, creating a sound mobile strategy. And uh, in your uh, presentation summary, you say, today's mobile strategies involve much more than an application on an array of smart devices. Your mobile strategy can have implications from just about everything. You list off a bunch of things the company can do. I think that just, you know, slapping something on a mobile app, that probably a few years ago was was the way companies were going. Right, right. Not a good way to go. And so we all, we all seems like have mobile devices. These are proliferating. We all have our smartphones. We have our tablets, and that's where we're living today. And you're saying the companies need to have a, a broad, overarching strategy to, to get to those people. 
I agree. I mean, there are a lot of mobile applications on the market today. There's a lot of useless mobile applications on the market today. Uh, I think this is a trend we we tend to see in technology from time to time. What my talk is going to be about is to step back for a moment and consider why you want to do mobile in the first place and what it means to you. Um, not everyone needs to do a mobile application. Sometimes uh, really taking your web property and aligning it with a mobile-friendly approach uh, could be very, very beneficial mm-hmm. to a company. So I'm all about considering why you want to do it, how it fits with your corporate brand and the traits of that brand, uh, who your audiences really are, you know, whether they're B2B, uh, business-to-business, or business-to-consumer. And then look at a comprehensive strategy because people don't understand that it virtually affects some main components technically as well. Uh, one is not only your web presence and how you translate that to the iOS platform or the Android platform, but also uh, database considerations, what kind of database information you're planning on implementing, and then um, what types of available developing solutions for for those platforms. Do you go native? Do you use uh, tools that are readily available on the market? What does that look like? We're talking on this part of the program uh, with Kimberly Jones. You just heard from her uh, founder and CEO of Veritate talking about uh, mobile applications and the mobile strategy for companies. And with Stephen John, Strategic Chief Information Officer for Workday, talking about uh, analytics and uh, big data and uh, the fact that companies in the future will be differentiating based on uh, how well they analyze data, not on the processes that they set up. We are previewing the... Uh, USU Huntsman School of Business Partners in Business 29th Annual Information Technology Conference. That's happening tomorrow at USU. And uh, when we come back from a brief break, which we'll uh, take next, we'll be ask, I'll be asking my guests uh, what the, about the future. Uh, I'm sure they think a lot about the future, both cloud computing and uh, network security and uh, mobile applications and what consumers are wanting and pushing for in the future. Maybe give you some ideas of... Uh, of what to go out and get next. We'll be back with uh, Stephen John and with Kimberly Jones after this break. UPR is celebrating 60 years of broadcasting with a mug contest. Submit your artistic creations for possible inclusion on the next UPR mug at upr.org. Identify Utah Public Radio and our anniversary with your design, then let your imagination carry you away. The winner will be selected by our listeners. Your drawing, painting, or photograph will be imprinted on the Spring 2013 membership mug for all to see. For ideas or for more information, just go to upr.org. The deadline is February 11th. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from the USU Huntsman School of Business. Partners in Business 29th Annual Information Technology Conference at Ellen Eccles Conference Center at at the Eccles Conference Center tomorrow. Details at partners.usu.edu. Thanks for joining us. We are previewing the uh, Partners in Business 29th Annual Information Technology Conference. That's happening at the Eccles Conference Center tomorrow. Details at partners.usu.edu. We're talking with two of the keynote speakers, Kimberly Jones, founder and CEO of Verite, and Stephen John, Strategic Chief Information Officer for Workday. 
We welcome your questions and comments at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. And you can reach us by email as well at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at uh, gmail.com. Uh, let me turn uh, uh, to Kimberly Jones. Uh, we just heard today the uh, news that um, Dell uh, computers are uh, trying to go private. They want to take the company private. And part of that report, as I was hearing this morning, is uh, that the sales have kind of dropped off. They're sort of declining. I wonder if that has to do mostly with people going uh, to to their mobile devices. And the laptops are so last decade. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that has been a trend that's been emerging for some time now. It's, and it's affecting, you know, giants like Microsoft and Intel as well. But I think what's at the heart of that is good, solid user experience. So Apple came in and did a great job with their interface design and their approach to tablets and smart devices. And I think that's not only uh, moved a lot of people over to mobile devices, but it's moved a lot of people over to Apple in general as a corporation. By the way, what do you what do you think? That is, is a very interesting example of uh, a company very much needing its its visionary. Uh, you yes. know, they they uh, they sent Steve Jobs packing. The, the company declined. They brought him back. It exploded again. Uh, now he died, and uh, we're wondering where Apple's going to go. Yeah, that's a big question that remains to be seen. Tim Cook is a different type of CEO from Steve Jobs. I. Uh, grew up in Silicon Valley, not too far from Steve Jobs, actually, and and came to Utah about uh, 21 years ago um, and have uh, headed up the, the Utah Information Technology Association, which is now UTC, which is how I know Darwin. Um, so I've followed technology a lot of my career, and, and I'm seeing another major shift in the industry. So I think that it backs up all of the data we have on how uh, mobile is very much present in today's society and how it's affecting the numbers. And what's going on with Dell today is just one more uh, indicator of that trend. What do you think the future is? It's always hard, to, and of course, to get an advantage, every company is trying to divine the future. But what are, uh, what are customers demanding? Where, where do you think this is going to go? Well, I think that there are a lot of uh, great futures, especially in mobile with e-wallets and purchasing, and and it probably blends into a lot about uh, data analytics, much like Stephen's involved with, um, and how that translates into retail store experiences and things of that nature. So I think the future is bright. I think innovation is clearly needed. And the speed of innovation in the technology arena is very, very fast. So, um, But I think the future is bright with e-commerce. I think the future is bright with thought leadership and nonprofits, actually. Um, we happen to do a mobile app for Shark Tracker for a nonprofit called O-Search, and it tracks sharks and allows the audience to name sharks. And it's become a critical tool for research scientists uh, in compiling information about sharks. So there's all kinds of avenues and potential for technology moving forward. That sounds like a, a site that I'd like to look at, uh, even beyond the research. Absolutely. I would definitely check it out. So O-Search... Yeah. 
org. There are probably others others like that that maybe have and, a, a confluence. You do, do research right. or you do business, but also would be uh, cool for consumers. Yes, and they wind up having implications they didn't think about. Um, mm-hmm. Let me spell that for you as well. It's O-C-E-A-R-C-H. Okay, very, very good. Just uh, uh, turned us on to a, to perhaps a very interesting site. Uh, let me turn to uh, Stephen John. Uh, let me ask you a similar question. What are some of the, the trends that have got you excited in uh, cloud computing and, uh, and, and in data analytics? Well, I think we almost need to, to step back and realize where we are from a historical uh, kind of perspective. This is very similar to the Industrial Revolution in the sense that uh, back when uh, each manufacturing plant was on a river so they could have their own uh, electricity uh, from uh, from uh, from the water source, uh, and so they had their own fat, their own electricity generation, their own generator. Uh, we're at a point now, just as as they move to an electronic grid, uh, uh, away from you know having to support that themselves. We're moving that way uh, at a corporate level and an individual level, where we don't have to have data centers, we don't have to have these things in our companies. We connect to a grid that connects us to those types of services. So we're seeing a major shift. Uh, just like when we moved from mainframes to client-server, uh, this is the next uh, a big S-curve uh, moving to cloud computing. And what do you think, uh, how do you think that will most affect everyday lives? Well, I think it'll be, it'll be more natural at the individual level, and, the, and we're already seeing that individuals are moving there much more quickly and adopting that technology uh, faster. They are not uh, adverse to having uh, uh, their... Uh, their information in the cloud. Corporations, uh, by their nature, are much more, uh, uh, they're slower moving, but also more, uh, more security uh, conscious, and so much more hesitant to move in that direction. But uh, we're now getting to the point where, you know, the mantra I use, if you're doing something that somebody else can do or do better than you, then something only you can do isn't getting done. So the idea there is we all have more on our plate than we can ever get done. If we're doing things that somebody else could do in the cloud, for example, then things that actually differentiate us or drive growth or drive innovation aren't happening because we don't have the time to get that to, to work on that. And so I think it'll shift companies. It'll liberate uh, uh, people to, to be more innovative and to, uh, to get more done, uh, hopefully, for their customers. We're talking with uh, Stephen Johns, Strategic Chief Information Officer for Workday, and Kimberly Jones, founder and CEO of Verite. They're two of the keynoters for the USU Huntsman School of Business Partners in Business 29th Annual uh, Information Technology Conference. That's happening tomorrow on the USU campus. And we're talking about information technology, uh, the increasing virtualization of our world and digitization of our world and what uh, effects that will have on us. You're welcome to join the conversation. We just have uh, two or three minutes left uh, at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. did have this email from uh, uh, Steve McIntyre. I appreciate this, Steve. Uh, he reminds me about a report just out today that you have maybe heard on NPR. In fact, I'm quoting NPR here. The federal government has proposed an ambitious plan to build public Wi-Fi networks across the country. The idea is to boost innovation, make the Internet cheaper and more accessible. And uh, some of the uh, current providers are against the plan, uh, thinking that it would uh, cut into their business. By the way, this, this bandwidth would come from uh, the FCC purchasing uh, some bandwidth back from uh, television stations, I believe. 
and others uh, say that this will only help and 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 fuel uh, innovation. I wonder if uh, either of my guests has has some thoughts on on this proposal. So so my my thought there would be there's a there's a fairness idea there in that uh, a lot of the the current bandwidth is is focused around large economic centers. So very urban in its nature, and so rural, the rural communities don't have as much access or as as quality uh, as access as as others, and so that could lead to a, a more uh, 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 fairness uh, in access. Well, I I think also, and and business equation aside, uh, I'd like to see Wi-Fi become the next plumbing. In other words, we don't need to think about it if you're on a plane, if you're in a rural area, what have you. I would love to see Wi-Fi availability virtually everywhere you go. Hmm. Now, wouldn't that hurt some companies uh, like Verizon or or, or the others that, that currently are, that's part of their main business? Well, you know, there's different types of bandwidth and other areas I'm sure they can monetize within that framework. Uh, I'd leave it to them to come up with that. But to have basic Wi-Fi, be able to get email uh, and other types of standard access, I believe, should be transparent and ubiquitous. And, and why would you like to see this become the new plumbing? Because I hate it when I'm on a plane and I have to see if, A, they have Wi-Fi and then purchase it and do everything else. I I believe that it should be, you know, the plumbing of the next generation or the telephone line, if you will, mm-hmm. of the next generation. Oh, interesting. Stephen John, I don't know if you have an opinion on this. Absolutely. I, I, I agree with that. And as far as the, uh, you know, the service providers, uh, they're going to be able to, to have value-added capabilities added onto that, higher levels of quality, higher bandwidth, uh, that, you know, if you're streaming a movie, you may want to buy into that or, or those types of things. So I don't, I don't think that the, that the pie is getting bigger. And so uh, I, I, don't, uh, I don't see it as an issue uh, uh, that, that we may be carving a piece of that back uh, for everyone. I want to uh, finally just uh, take a look at uh, the, where we are and where we might be going with, with, with analytics. Um, I was reading that the Obama and Romney campaign, state of politics today, whatever else you might, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of other things with politics. But this was interesting, dealing with information technology, that nowadays campaigns uh, can target households, not blocks, not cities, but households. They can target you specifically with their appeal, and I guess this is piggybacking on general advertising. On the one hand, to the consumer, maybe this is a little annoying. On the other hand, this is a very powerful tool, not only for business, but for for regular people. I wonder where you see this going, either Stephen John or, or Kimberly Jones. Well, I, I think a couple of things will, will come out of this. I think, you know, uh, the government tends to lag behind uh, uh, individuals and corporations and, and even, uh, you know, academic institutions. Uh, I think what we'll see is is a lot of legislation coming around around uh, privacy, and and more restrictions uh, around that, um, and, and especially as we see it more and more uh, abused, and so I think that's where government will will start stepping in is is to protect the citizens as as they should, and so I think you'll see more privacy laws come out. Hmm. Uh, any thoughts on this from uh, Kimberly Jones? 
well, I think I agree with Stephen. The the privacy laws are probably going to be impacted, and I get a little nervous when government wants to take on huge programs uh, myself. But um, I can understand it's a two-sided coin. I, I do worry, though, about the implication on privacy. And I'm sure that we'll see this being fought in the, in the public arena going forward. Uh, very interesting, and uh, you have an opportunity to hear more from Stephen John and Kimberly Jones tomorrow. Uh, that's when the Information Technology Conference is being held at the Eccles Conference Center on the USU campus. Details are at partners.usu.edu. And our thanks to Kimberly Jones, founder and CEO of Verite. Thank you. Thank you. And Stephen John, Strategic Chief Information Officer for Workday. Thank you. Thanks. Coming up, we're going to talk about who owns the stream bed. Of course, it is not controversial that the public waterways are owned by the public. But uh, So if you were to float uh, in the water, you'd be okay. But uh, anglers and others who are recreating in these waterways are standing on the stream bed. And House Bill 141 from two, two years ago made it so anglers, kayakers, and others have to get landers' permission before walking on that private bed of a public body of water. The bill's sponsor, uh, Kay McKiff from Richfield, is out with a new proposed bill, uh, House Bill 68, which would uh, further uh, advance this. And opponents uh, say that uh, this is uh, thwarting public interest. We'll talk with a gentleman with uh, this point of view. Uh, Craig Coburn represents the Utah Stream Access Coalition. We'll talk with him following this break. Are you looking for clear and concise car advice? You pour it into the engine, into the engine where you would normally put the oil. And fire her up. Fire her up and you let it run. For how long? Well, as long as it takes to blow up. There's a lot of controversy about how long. Join <laughs> us as we demystify more car problems. This week on Car Talk. Saturday morning at 10 and repeated Sunday at 5. Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by the USU Huntsman School of Business. Partners in business in the 29th and partners in business the 29th annual information technology conference at the Eccles conference center tomorrow details at partners.usu.edu word for legislative programming on utah public radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the usu credit union serving members with 24 local atms and more than 30,000 atm access points across utah and the u.s through the credit union co-op network information is at usuccu.org Support also comes from your local office of AARP Utah, a nonpartisan organization helping people 50 and over improve their lives through its advocacy for health care reform, social security, and consumer protection in Utah. Information is at aarp.org slash UT. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We turn from information technology to the great outdoors and a growing tension between private property and recreational access to public land and waters. And recently, Attorney Craig Coburn argued in a courtroom in Heber City uh, that House Bill 141, which was passed in 2010, violates the public trust doctrine. Uh, so we uh, bring on uh, Craig Coburn. He's representing the uh, Utah Stream Access Coalition. Welcome to the program. 
Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. This is an interesting um, interesting case. I hadn't been aware of some of these issues. Of course, we're aware of uh, the tension, ongoing tension, between uh, private property ownership and public access. But it, as it uh, relates to streams, um, I guess the, the, the law as it stands right now, as I understand it, reading some of the newspaper reports, is that there's not a controversy with regard to the water flowing through these stream beds. There is a controversy over who owns and who should have access to the stream bed. I think that's fairly accurate, yeah. Uh, so what, what the, uh, first of all, tell us what the public trust doctrine is. Well, the public trust doctrine uh, harkens back to a concept that the courts understand as natural law, but it's, it's rooted in, um, I guess, formal or codified law all the way back to Roman times, and it found its way into English law, common law, and then when uh, the United States, North America, was settled, the principle followed the, uh, the immigrants to the United States. And essentially, where the public trust started out was providing that um, navigable waters in their bed were to be held in trust by uh, the empire in Roman times, the crown in English times, and the government here, the, the navigable waters in their beds are to be held in trust by the government for the benefit of the people, and the primary uh, uses were uh, navigation and commerce and fishing. And so that's the basic public trust doctrine as it came to these United States, and then um, it's evolved in some states uh, to include other public resources beyond navigable, navigable waters in their beds. Um, how it plays into the case that we have in Utah, the situation we have in Utah is actually on two fronts. One, uh, there's a concept called the Equal Footing Doctrine. It's a federal constitutional principle which basically says that when the states enter the Union, they come in on equal footing with all the other states. And what that meant was um, when the United States was formed, the 13 colonies all took title to their, the beds of their navigable waters and uh, subject to what the law calls a navigable, a federal navigable servitude. So what that means is, is that the states took ownership of the beds of navigable waters and trust for the benefit of the people but the federal government retained jurisdiction to ensure that those navigable waters could be could continue to be navigated. Hmm. The public trust doctrine that we're dealing with in Utah has that element in one of the two cases the coalition has filed. Uh, one's on the Weber River, and it has a a more um, innocuous element, if you will, on the case we filed on the Provo, because on the Provo case we're dealing with a state public trust doctrine, not a federal trust doctrine. Mm -hmm. And on the Provo case, the, the, the argument that occurred a couple weeks ago before Judge Pullen was that HB 141 violated the state public trust principles because it was passed for no public purpose whatsoever but rather to keep the public off the water uh, with the exception of continuous floating of waters. So it's okay to float down the river, you just can't stand on the stream bed? 
Yeah, you can't stand on the stream bed, and, and let's make sure we're talking about which, which waters were, were, uh, were at issue here. We're talking about public waters that traverse private property. We're not talking about public waters that traverse public land, specifically federal land such as BLM or Forest Service land. We're talking about public waters that traverse private property. And so far in the Provo case, Judge Pullen has ruled that the state, or sorry, that the public's right to lawfully access and use all public waters in Utah was recognized and confirmed under the Utah Constitution. Mm. So, and he's concerned, or he asked the question of the parties, did this violate the, pub, the state public trust doctrine? And that's where the case is. We're talking with Craig Coburn. He's an attorney representing Utah Stream Access Coalition. We're talking about a, uh, a challenge in court to House Bill 141, which passed in 2010. Um, and uh, I believe the sponsor there was Representative McKiff. Am I correct there? That's correct. And we did invite Representative McKiff on the program today. He was unable to join us, but just just yeah, so you, just so you know, yeah, I think he's up on the hill. But yes, uh, so just so people know, uh, and I believe the representative has uh, proposed a House Bill 68, which would uh, further, uh, I guess, further restrict access. First of all, tell us uh, what the law was before 141. And uh, w how it changed things, and, and why you're you're challenging it. Well, I think to really understand this issue, it helps to review a little bit of the history of stream access in Utah, going back uh, to the founding of the, of the territory and the state. Utahns have a very rich history of using their streams and rivers in place uh, without regard to bed ownership without regard to any federal public trust doctrine, anything like that. Um, Brigham Young, on the second day in the Salt Lake Valley, is, is reported to have declared that all the waters shall be owned by the public. And as you trace the history of the use of Utah's rivers and streams, it's really quite remarkable. This is, this is an area of law that, and frankly history, that I wasn't familiar with until I got involved in this case. But Utah's have been using their streams and rivers for a wide variety of public uses, including walking to bed. The, the, the most fundamental use was fishing to avoid starvation. Uh, back in the 1840s and 50s, there were, there were instances where crops did not come in, and the population was um, not able to feed themselves, and the rivers and streams were fished hard just to keep people alive. And that actually evolved as, as the economy stabilized and uh, the pioneers were better able to take care of their crops. It, it actually evolved into a commercial fishing, uh, particularly in, on the tributaries feeding Utah Lake. There was a June Sucker and the uh, Bonneville Cutthroat were commercially fished almost to extinction uh, to feed the population. But in terms of just the sheer magnitude of the use throughout the state, um, these rivers and streams, uh, particularly in the northern half of the state, were used to transport railroad ties and saw timber and uh, other wood products from the mountains to market uh, from basically 1850s all the way into the early 1900s. And the, the extent of that use is just phenomenal. 
there were years, uh, for example, when the uh, the, the Transcontinental Railroad was coming through Utah, Utah, where there were literally hundreds of thousands of ties cut in the mountains and dumped into the rivers during uh, spring runoff, and sometimes even throughout the year if you had enough water, and they were floated down to help build the uh, the Transcontinental Railroad, and then subsequently other spurs coming off the Transcontinental Railroad, the Utah Central Railroad. So we have a very rich history of using our rivers and streams, the public using our rivers and streams for for sustenance, for uh, survival in a couple of instances, and to build this economy. Mm. And it's really quite remarkable, um, the extent of our public use. HB 141 uh, ignored that and basically said that, uh, well, the private parties, the private landowners who have own the beds underneath these waters have essentially paramount rights over the public and basically told the the, uh, public, the people of Utah, that you can't go there unless you're just floating. And I should say that there's a string of Utah Supreme Court cases that support this notion that the public owns and has always owned these waters and the public has and has always had a right to use those waters in place, including touching the bed. And in fact, there was a Supreme Court decision that came out in 2008, it's called the Knatzer decision, that said just that. And HB 141 was passed to legislatively overrule that case and just essentially keep people off private waters where they traverse private, or excuse me, public waters where they traverse private beds. We're talking with Craig Coburn. He is an attorney representing the Utah Stream Access Coalition. Talk about House Bill 141, which uh, restricted uh, access of anglers and others who would like to use uh, stream beds. The water flowing is is okay. That's uh, considered by most to be uh, in the public ownership. But at issue is whether or not the stream bed is publicly owned or can be restricted to uh, private property rights. Uh, and we're talking about this issue. Uh, Representative McKiff has proposed a House Bill 68, which would further restrict uh, access to these stream beds, at least in the view of, uh, of those who are against the original bill. We're talking about this with uh, Craig Coburn, and we're going to take a brief break. When I come back, I will uh, put to Mr. Coburn some of the arguments from the uh, other side, have him respond to that, and that's coming following the break. If you're like me and tend to put off getting that special Valentine's gift until, well, Valentine's Day, then let Utah Public Radio take care of your sweetheart, friend, or relative. When you make a $75 contribution to UPR, we'll send a box of handmade artisan chocolates anywhere in the country along with your personalized message. You can even choose to have your message read on the air on Valentine's Day. Just go to upr.org by this Friday at 3 o'clock to show your love for your special someone and UPR. Support for legislative programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the USU Credit Union, serving members with online bill payer, web teller services, and mobile banking for around-the-clock account access. Information is at usuccu.org. 
Support also comes from your local office of AARP Utah, a nonpartisan organization helping people 50 and over improve their lives through its advocacy for health care reform, social security, and consumer protection in Utah. Information is at aarp.org ut. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're ch- talking about access to and who owns stream beds. The water flowing is a public uh, is a public property, but there are, of course, an increasing number of private property owners who own the land next to stream beds. That is choking off access to some uh, popular areas for anglers and the like. Uh, and House Bill 141, two years ago, sponsored by Representative Kay McKiff, Republican of uh, Richfield. Uh, said that you have to get uh, permission from those landowners before you stand on that stream bed. This goes against the public trust doctrine, and several other legal doctrines uh, say the opponents of House Bill 141. Representative McKiff is out with another bill this session, uh, House Bill 68. Craig Coburn is an attorney representing the Utah Stream Access Coalition. Uh, They oppose House Bill 141, and I assume House Bill 68 as well. We're talking about this. And, uh, Mr. Coburn, I want to put a couple of arguments from the other side, have you respond to those. And I'm reading from Brian Maffley's article in the Salt Lake Tribune uh, recently. Uh, so the, the, the first point would be people can still stand on the stream beds if they get permission from the landowner. I think they have to get permission anyway to cross the, the, the private land if they have to get access to it. Uh, but here is what Tom Roberts, assistant Utah Attorney General, said. It rewards this bill, this rebalancing, as proponents would see it, rewards those who are taking care of the property. Those next to the water would have greater interest in maintaining it. Well, I think in some instances that's true, and I think in other instances it's not. Um, There are private landowners who take very good care of their property and and the stream bank and the riparian zone, and there are others that do not. And there are members of the public who utilize these waters who take very good care of uh, the stream and others who do not. That's that's really not, I think, a viable argument. the fact is, in the Provo case where that argument was made, there's no evidence that that's true or not. It was an argument, uh, but unsupported by facts. And uh, another argument uh, that was uh, put forward is uh, taking it kind of to an extreme, but um, uh, absent a disposal of the resource, says Mr. Roberts, there can be no public trust violation. And taken to extreme, the English position would bar dams or other vital projects that would render streams unfishable. Well, that's actually, there's, there's some support, not in Utah, but there is some support for the argument that all the public trust requires is for the public entity, the government, to retain title to and control of the trust resource, and otherwise it can do what it wants. Um, if that argument were made in the, in the context of a private trust, uh, it would fail miserably. Mm. And we believe that there is some precedent in Utah and certainly precedent from other uh, states that say, no, you, that's what the government has to do at a minimum. They have to retain title to and control of the trust resource. But if they choose to regulate it, as HB 141 ostensibly does, they have to do so for the principal benefit of the trust beneficiaries. And in this case, the trust beneficiaries are the people. And the only other latitude the government has is if there's some 
greater public purpose that would warrant uh, regulation of the public tr- uh, public trust resource, the government can go in that direction as well. But what they can't do, and what H- HB 141 does do, is essentially privatize a public resource. Um, it's important to understand that, not just in Utah, but almost universally, when a stream flows across private land, the law views the stream um, as encumbering that land. The landowner takes title subject to that stream being there, and, and he or she cannot move it. They can't dam it up and send it elsewhere. It's there, and they have it on their property, and their land is, is encumbered by it. And the quick case law in Utah has said, this is a case that came out in the early 80s, that just as the water encumbers private land, so too does the public's right to use that water. Mm. And so we're talking about a a fundamental concept called an easement or a right-of-way, and everybody has uh, an easement across the front of their lot, and it's called a sidewalk. It's a public easement. It's on your property, but it's a public easement, and the public has the right to use it in a manner reasonably consistent with the use of a sidewalk, and that's essentially the argument that the stream access people are saying here. This is a public easement. We have a right to make reasonable use of it, and that includes touching the bed of the water when using the water for a lawful purpose. Well, we've reached the end of our time. Uh, much more can be uh, read at utahstreamaccesscoalition.org. That's the website of the organization. We'll be seeing this uh, played out in the uh, this session of the legislature. Representative McKiff is uh, running a bill, I believe, House Bill 68, which would further address these issues. And, of course, the lawsuits uh, proceed. Craig Coburn is an attorney representing Utah Stream Access Coalition. That's a group that opposes House Bill 141. Mr. Coburn, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, Tomorrow on the program, we hope you'll join us, we're going to be talking about uh, gay scouts. The uh, National BSA have floated an idea. They say they're going to decide whether to reverse their policy against admitting gay scouts and gay scout leaders. This, of course, is very controversial. The uh, uh, Greater Salt Lake... uh, Council of the uh, Boy Scouts of America has urged the national organization to delay their decision. We're going to be talking about this with Dory Burt, mother of two Eagle Scouts, with Kelton Wells, who is an Eagle Scout, current USU uh, student, and Robert Starling, a uh, scouter. And we'll have uh, opinions on both sides of the issue. Hope to get your calls as well. That's coming up tomorrow on the program. For producer Shalane Smith-Needham, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today.